1: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we'll be talking about President-elect Donald Trump's inauguration and the folks who are going to be praying and being on the stage with him at the inauguration. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And I am joined by Mark Galley, CT's editor-in-chief.
0: Good morning.
1: Good morning is this not the time we normally record the podcast
0: This is not the <laughs> time we normally record especially before I've had my cup of coffee and just ending getting
1: a cold so Guys Mark is a trooper Thank you Mark for coming <laughs> on to the show I also have not had coffee but I never drink coffee so I think that's different Um who's our guest today Mark
0: It is Samuel Rodriguez he's the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference he's the author most recently of a book called Be Light Shining God's Beauty Truth and Hope into a darkened world. He happens to be a member of the Christianity Today Board, but we brought him on because he is uh, one of the people who is praying at the inauguration this week. And uh, I've had a lot of personal conversations with with Sammy, and I think he will help us discern how a pastor enters the public square with integrity.
1: Hey, Sam.
0: Good morning, my friends.
1: How's it going?
0: Wonderful.
2: Wonderful. Blessed indeed.
1: So, question for you then, what is like the average amount of hours you sleep a night? Four. For real? But
2: we're trying to, yeah, but we're trying to increase that to about six and seven now that I'm getting a little bit older. So, yes.
1: Wow. Mark, how about you?
0: Uh, I don't feel really good until I have eight, and I like to have nine, so that's why Sammy's getting—that's <laughs> why Sammy gets so much done in the world, and I get so little done in the world. Four
1: hours is crazy. I wish I could only sleep four hours. No, but that's, you know,
2: over the holidays, of course, that increases exponentially, but...
1: To five. <laughs>
2: to five and a half, at least.
1: <laughs> cool. So, this Friday, we are getting a new president. Donald A. Trump is soon to be sworn in as number 45. So the president-elect has been ridiculed in some ways for his difficulty in landing musicians or celebrities in some ways who are interested in playing at his inauguration and inaugural ball. But those troubles have not extended to the presence of religious leaders who will be showing up to the inauguration. In fact, Trump has the largest group of clergy since Ronald Reagan that will be joining him up there. Among others, the list includes televangelist Paula White, prosperity preacher Wayne Jackson, Samaritan's Purse CEO and evangelist Franklin Graham, and Argus Sam Rodriguez. So a little bit of background about some of the folks that are going to be going up there. White openly supported Trump during the campaign and spoke about his Conversion to Christianity. Graham didn't officially endorse Trump, but after the election, he wrote, quote, Many thought the Trump Pence ticket didn't have a chance. None of them understood the God factor, unquote. Franklin also appeared alongside the president elect during Trump's uh, thank you tour that he went on last year. So, Sam, our guest, met Trump last summer for a, quote, very healthy discussion of issues, including religious liberty and immigration. Um, and, Sam, you also said we also talked about racial unity as it pertains to bringing the country together. You also said the opportunity to speak on the quintessential political platform in the world and to be able to lift up Jesus on that stage before the global audience, without a doubt, is one of the greatest privileges I've ever received in my life. It is a God-graced opportunity that one cannot turn down. So before we... Peppers Sam, with some questions. This is the time that we have our gut check. This is the time, of course, where we kind of share our initial reaction to things. And so, when you saw this group of leaders come out um, that Trump had announced would be praying um, or leading some sort of religious component in the service, did what was your initial reaction?
0: Well, my initial reaction was these are people that are not, in a sense, part of my world or people I spend a lot of time paying attention to. There's some of some of the people here. I have some troubles with their theology. But to be frank, and I'm not trying to kiss up to Sammy at this point, when I heard that he was going to be on the platform, my heart was eased to some degree. Although at the same time, it raised a bunch of questions and I thought it would be really great to talk to Sammy about it.
1: One person that I neglected to mentioned earlier is that the Archbishop, Timothy Dolan, will also be on there. So I mentioned his name only because I think that I looked at the list and was like, oh, the predictable characters. And then I was like, oh, there's someone on our board that's going to be speaking there. And then, oh, Timothy Dolan, who I know has been a little bit more critical of some of the stuff that Trump has said or done over the course of his campaign. So in... In some ways, I guess I was surprised by the people that were on there, not necessarily in the, f- the first list of names that I game, but to see Sam and to see Timothy Dolan on there. And like you, it was like, okay, tell me more. Anyway, we have Sam on here now so we can ask him all the questions. The first question I have for you is the conclusion that most people draw when they see folks up on the inauguration stage is that their presence equates to support. Would you say that's fair to see your presence at the inauguration like that? It's
2: all according to what you reference as it pertains to what I am supporting, I never endorsed Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton throughout the course of the campaign. It was never a prerequisite, by the way, when I was invited by the inaugural committee to share and participate, to endorse Donald Trump explicitly or implicitly, for that matter. I think out of all the individuals invited, I would fall in the same category if we were to somehow fragment different invitations, Cardinal Dolan and I would probably fit in the same category. Throughout the course of the campaign, we both respectfully pushed back and critiqued the president-elect on the issue of immigration reform and the rhetoric and the lack of civility. And, you know, lo and behold, I received an invitation. It does speak to the support of the ideas of religious liberty. I am very pleased that all things being equal, The agenda of life will be advanced in and out of the womb on those two fronts. And by the way, even a strong pivot taking place post facto uh, on a 60 Minutes interview, Time Magazine interview, and even uh, last evening on the issue of immigration reform, where he was asked even last night whether or not all the individuals will be deported. And he again mentioned the fact that he he will not, quote, separate families, and he will find a pathway to legalize these individuals. So Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. And obviously, my appearance there speaks to giving this man an opportunity to see whether or not he will follow through with this new tone, this new rhetoric, and his commitments to life, religious liberty, and immigration reform.
0: Now, some, uh, of course, think that associating with Trump or... So certainly praying it at his inauguration is an act of disloyalty to Christ because some people consider him a racist uh they've compared him to Hitler they've compared him to the antichrist in fact i mean how do you how do you how do you respond to Christians who are suspicious of you doing that?
2: I understand a bit of the angst. I pastor a multi-ethnic church, mind you. Half my church did not vote for Donald Trump. My church is 40, 45% African-American, 40% Anglo, Caucasian, and the rest Asian or Latino. And then I have a Spanish campus that's exclusively Latino. So I understand it. I don't agree with it intellectually. If we are upset with Donald Trump's rhetoric, we must equally be upset with President Obama's policies. So here we are calling Donald Trump many names or many in in society, even in the church, even Christians, the names that you mentioned before, be it racist or whatever it may be. But then we look at the policies of President Obama. He deported 2.5 million immigrants, of which 90% were Latina. What do we call him? Uh, The number of abortions that took place, the amazing transformation on issues and redefining on issues regarding family and and marriages and so forth, the lack of protection as it pertains to religious liberty, without a doubt. So what do we call him? Anti-Christian? Again, these descriptors and nomenclatures and name-calling, we need to rise above that. We're the church of Jesus. It's not to say that we are ever to tolerate injustice. God forbid. I mean, we understand the, the life and the admonition personified in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We get that. We understand Newbert. We understand the clarion called Dr. King to never be silent. We get that. But there's a difference between rhetoric and action. Throughout the course of the campaign, Donald Trump never, ever, ever once made one negative comment regarding the African-American community. Quite the opposite. When he would try to pivot on immigration, on how illegal immigration was harming America, he would always do so by elevating quote, the beautiful African-American community that is losing jobs to undocumented individuals. He always spoke accolades of the African-American community, yet the African-American community strongly voted against him, while 30% of Latinos who, without a doubt, his rhetoric regarding Latino immigrants throughout the course of his campaign fell short. And that's an understatement, right? I'm being very compassionate here. And and yet 30% of Latinos voted for him. So the community that should have some sort of legitimacy at least, at least initially, to place a label on Donald Trump somehow saw beyond the rhetoric. And yet the community that received the accolades is the one that is most strongly calling him a racist.
1: To me, they're not necessarily on opposite sides. I, I think rhetoric does suggest and hint at action. And often rhetoric, you know, force either foreshadows your own actions on something and or encourages your supporters to take action themselves, some of the ways in which Donald Trump did talk about race led to reports um, of stuff at his at his rallies and events of people of color that were kicked out of them or at times assaulted at the events. Yeah, I, I guess I just don't see them necessarily as being as separate. In, in full disclosure on that, again, I did not endorse Donald Trump
2: at all during the campaign, and I was a critic of his rhetoric on immigration, particularly. But in truth, be told, many of those uh, exploits regarding things that took place in the Donald Trump campaign emerged to be part of that continual thread and lineage of quote fake news. So many of that has been disproven, indeed, especially as it pertains to his rallies and 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 campaign events and the abuse, be it verbal or physical, on on people of color. Uh, that being said, again, I don't deny the fact. I mean, we can't deny the fact. We're not naive. A certain element of the American populace stood motivated and engaged because of the extreme rhetoric. And that's not only unfortunate, to me, it is wrong. So what what stood activated throughout the course of the campaign? The angst, fear. Let's just say hope and change were not the motivating factors in the 2016 <laughs> election, right? It was fear. It was angst, It was consternation. You know, the old broadcast news movie, you know, I am very frustrated. I'm using my terms now because I'm a good evangelical. I am mad as darn and and Hades, and I'm not going to take it anymore. So it was basically that line that won the campaign. My hope and prayer is that, my presence on that pulpit, you know, and I, and I did my due diligence with my wife and my kids, which what I call my executive committee. And I said, I don't want to convey any message that endorses anything that run counters to the very things that we have fought for all these years. And am and, and I honoring the legacy of Dr. King and Billy Graham? which is, you know, and of course, more importantly, am I honoring the spirit of Christ and as a good orthodox evangelical, the word of God. And by praying, uh, by praying, by participating, just like Cardinal Dillon, I do believe that if, if any, anything, it's a mandate, an opportunity to speak about truth and love and grace and hope and unity. So I want to be a, a tool and an agent of reconciliation. And I hope and pray that the words that I share will exhibit my spirit.
1: So you prayed at the Republican National Convention in 2012, and you also took part in a prayer service for President Obama's second inauguration.
2: No, no, first, first. Inaugural. I was actually part of the inaugural prayer service in 2008, and I was invited by Senator Schumer to participate in the inauguration for 2012. Unfortunately, or fortunately, that day, um, I was speaking at Ebenezer Baptist on the anniversary of Dr. King. Uh, so I had a commitment to Bernice King, who is uh, a very dear friend of mine.
1: I, I bring up those examples just to ask you, what what is your understanding and kind of philosophy of political engagement?
2: And I know, Mark, you've heard this before from me, but really, really never, never, ever, ever, ever marry one political ideology, ever, under any circumstance. So as a pastor, if if I am a Republican or a Democrat as a pastor, and I say this respectfully, I know others may disagree, but I, I believe we're cutting ourselves short, and we're conveying a very dangerous message to our constituents and our members, because I do believe we need to be politically independent in order to be prophetically viable. We must be politically independent. And you may say it sounds like a lot of rhetoric, right? But no, I actually believe in a practical way that we should, that all Christians should register as independent voters and pastors should be independent and that they speak to their congregations on the values that we hold near and dear, our biblical values. I listed some for you. Mines would be life, religious liberty, racial unity, educational equality, limited government, immigration reform, and camel macchiatos for all. <laughs> so I do believe that these these are these are values for absolutely everyone. But I do believe, it all, you know, in, in all seriousness, this idea of being politically independent. So as a pastor, I engage the the public sphere, the political square, with great fear and trembling. You speak prophetically into it, but you never get married to it, and you run away from it as expeditiously as possible, and go back home and make the main thing the main thing, which is the centrality of Jesus Christ biblical truth, love and grace, hope and mercy, all via the vicarious atoning work of Jesus. So that's what I believe should be our sort of framework or rubric for prophetic engagement by, by the pastoral body.
0: So when you're praying at these events, uh, we're, you know, again, some would uh, argue because we're in a pluralistic society, uh, you should not mention anything in the theme of your prayer that could be viewed as divisive. And what they mainly mean is the name of Jesus Christ or especially praying in the name of Jesus Christ so how do you how do you negotiate those issues
2: oh good well see that's that's here's the problem mark and I may get in trouble for this, which is be the first time.
0: Um, <laughs> that's never happened
2: to you before. <laughs> never happened before. I, I have a hard time not praying in the name of Jesus, and I do it with great nuance and respect. I don't think the name of Jesus is divisive. I think the name of Jesus is the most uniting, powerful, reconciliatory, engaging, positive name in the universe. And that's beyond just my evangelical preacher self speaking. It's very powerful. I have shared the name of Jesus in public events with, a, with rabbis and... And imans next to me, and I've done it with great nuance, with great respect to my friends of other faiths, who I love, and they have done nothing other than applaud. It's not just what you say; it's how you say it. So there's a great possibility that what I do share in this inaugural, in this inauguration, this swearing-in ceremony, it may very well be respectfully to to all my other of faith brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus. I, I don't find that to be divisive. I find rhetoric that becomes very abrasive, very confrontational to be divisive. Of course, when we put down other religious groups, when we speak disparagingly or negatively or in a condescending manner as it pertains to other religions, I find that to be a contradiction to scripture. And hey, I'm gonna be honest, Sam Rodriguez today is not the same San Rodriguez of 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. Um, you know, I remember a, a quasi—not mocking, but speaking about an event where I prayed at, where I kind, and initially I kind of made fun of the the universalists who prayed in a certain way, which was funny because it's still funny. I didn't do it to—I <laughs> mean, it is funny. The person prayed, "You're the God of many names and no name at all." So, I mean, it, it is kind of funny. Do you want to so, tell us the story? <laughs> no, he just, I prayed at an event in Washington, D.C. And and there was an imam there and there was a rabbi there and uh, a Unitarian pastor. They asked me to pray last. The Unitarian pastor prayed first and she said, you're the God of many names and no name at all. The rabbi did a wonderful prayer. The imam prayed. Um, and and these are wonderful people. They really are wonderful people. And they stood there and then I was asked to pray last. So then I prayed in the name above all names, in the name to whom every knee shabba, uh, in the name of he who saves delivers, and heals, in the name. <laughs> Oh Jesus. Gosh. No, no, but no no, but watch this. I kid you not. But I talked about, you know, in, in that name, but not in a way, in such a way, I kid you not. And they clapped. Huh. They, I mean, they, the other three were clapping because the rest of the crowd exploded and it was a secular event. And someone asked, why is everyone, you know, re- responding to your prayer that way? Because there's still power in the name of Jesus. The way I did it was not speaking bad about the other religious groups. I spoke about this loving, graceful name that that, that is above even the names of, of, of hatred and discord and pain, above all other names uh, that, that we may try to present. Or, but it was beautiful. It wasn't done with hate. They felt the love. And they applauded me and supported me. So there's a way of doing it indeed.
3: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: You talked to us a little bit about not wanting to be married to a political party. I'm also wondering about what your philosophy is with regards to working with politicians and if there are politicians that you might be unwilling to work with based on principle.
2: I have worked with both sides on both sides of the aisle. I, I, I advise George W. Bush I was a, a an advisor to President Obama and met with him on a number of occasions. I met with Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, you name it, John Boehner, it, across the board, and now with President-elect Trump and his team. Are there any politicians I will not work with? Wow. The, it would It would require an extreme sort of agenda coming out of a politician or rhetoric coming out of a politician. That, that would prompt me somehow to say, I can't work with this person. And I, by extreme, I mean something that is so derogatory, something that is anatema to, to who we are as Christians. Now, some, some may argue, but some of the agenda there as it pertains to, let's say, life is so contrary to Scripture. Maybe you shouldn't work with anyone who is pro-choice. But that's the, I, I, Dr. King's adage, right? Unless you're present, change cannot take place. When he was critiqued for having dinner, for meeting with individuals who opposed the Civil Rights Voting Act or the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65, he was critiqued. And even by some in his community, and he would say, look, if I'm not having a conversation, these hearts and minds cannot change. So it it would really require something uberly extreme, where I would say I will not sit down with this individual.
1: So one thing I was wondering if you could speak to us a little bit, Sam, is about the way— your Hispanic heritage, or maybe more specifically, being Puerto Rican or being a Puerto Rican descent, informs your political engagement.
2: I am of Puerto Rican descent, raised in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, born in Newark, New Jersey, Jersey uh raised in Bethlehem, and from Puerto Rican parents. But, but here's the uh, the game changer: my eldest daughter married a Mexican, and my grandkids are Mexican, Mexican. That makes Christmas. Very, very enjoyable <laughs> oh
1: yeah
0: and
2: and and the number, the number of calories whew,
0: and you have wow. tam- you have tamales yeah. on Christmas Eve, then
2: tamales with pasteles it's there crazy it becomes yeah. it becomes really crazy, but my point to you is that, yeah, that does impact me, it impacts me, that new reality has impacted me, so when I speak on immigration reform, this is not the puerto Rican advocate this is this impacts my home, it impacts my grandkids, it impacts uh, my mother in law it impacts the people in my church. This is this is not like something anecdotal post facto, you know, thirty miles away. This is right here in my arms today. So I take this very personal. If there's any story we should be really evaluating it should be this idea of why did thirty percent of Latinos support Donald Trump in spite of everything he said? And why were sixty six percent of the thirty percent self identified as Hispanic evangelicals? How did that happen? And it speaks to what motivates people politically. And it's it, people I, I believe are looking beyond just the sound bites and looking at values that transcend one political cycle, and it impacts not only their generation but generations
0: to come. They're all also looking uh, beyond the stereotyped issues that they should be concerned about, according to the media,
1: or their leaders,
0: or their leaders that they actually are much more uh, nuanced and uh, complex individuals than we imagine them to
2: be. A 66% were
0: Hispanic evangelicals.
2: And this is like, you know, one of the leading pro-immigration reform communities in America, and yet the majority of Latino evangelicals supported the presidency or the election of Donald J. Trump. Go figure. Hey, we're not monolithic as Latinos. So as Morgan as it pertains to your question, yeah, I my Puerto Rican heritage, my my Latino experience, all that comes together indeed, but I'm a Christian first and foremost. Before I'm Latino, I'm a Christian. So, and I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I'm an American of Latino descent, and all of that. You put that in the blender. It is who I am, and and that's how I come to
0: my beliefs. Your uh, praying at the inauguration is one sign or one uh, aspect of your involvement in the public square. Uh, we are featuring a cover story in CT uh, on the Benedict option, which is Rod Dreer's idea that he believes Christians have lost the culture war, uh, that we are going to lose any political battles for for life or for religious freedom coming down the road. And he thinks uh, the Christian's best option would be to not completely withdraw from the national public square, because some people will still feel called to that. But for the most part, the church needs to spend more time focusing on rebuilding its own Soul, and to understand what does it mean to be a Christian, and how do we stand up in a culture that is in so many ways uh, hostile to Christian faith and Christian values? So, do you see? Do you just disagree with that approach, or do you see that as a viable option for Christians?
2: I disagree with his approach.
0: Okay, well then you can you can burn your issue of CT that comes out in the, the, next. No, issue. I me mean, first,
2: and I won't burn it. I'll just I'll just put it to the side. But <laughs> I, I, I mean. California very strict laws on the environment, but here it is <laughs> on on number one the abortion. Come on, the, the least the year with the least amount of abortions since nineteen seventy four that that came out two days ago. We're losing the abortion battle. Quite the contrary, uh, the millennials are actually more pro life than even my generation, Generation X. So no, we're not losing the abortion battle. Um, uh, the culture wars is the country becoming more secular? Yes and no. Hey, how about this? We are becoming more secular, except that evangelicals, evangelicals are having way more kids than the secularists. So, and I mean by alarming numbers. So in the Latino community, of course, we know how to reproduce and, and we continue to grow and thrive. At the end of the day, even numerically speaking, the idea that America in the next 50 years will no longer be a Christian nation, that is completely, from a mathematical standpoint, inaccurate. Forget about the prophetic by faith element. Inaccurate. Because we continue to have more kids than our secular, non-believing fellow Americans. So even numerically speaking, yes, we continue to grow. It's, and by the way, this battle with the culture, maybe even that term I have a problem with. With truth and love, instead of a culture battle and a culture war, we should engage the culture. I'll give you examples. Devon Franklin, one of my dearest friends on the planet, he is a Hollywood producer Vice president for Sony, now working with 20th Century Fox of a multi million dollar contract. Devon Franklin is in a positive manner engaging the culture with a book called The Weight on Abstinence with pro faith family movies, Roma Downey, Mark Burnett positively engaging the culture. I don't want a culture war. I don't want to battle the culture. I want to engage the culture with truth and love, and I want to reform the culture with the values of our Judeo Christian value system. We begin with the image of God in every single human being.
1: Well, Mark is bringing up the cover story. I just want to make a plug for our magazine. Mark, I think this cover story is for our March issue. Is that correct? That is correct. So if people want to get that, and I think they can still get our cover story on the Reformation for the January-February issue, you can do that by becoming a subscriber. And you can become a subscriber by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, where we are giving you our lowest rate, by the way. I've heard that this lowest rate is not going to be available for forever. So if you want the lowest rate, which is $10 for 10 issues, sign up right now, order ct.com slash quick to listen. And all of your subscriptions really help us on the podcast. So you get a magazine and you can support the podcast, which is awesome. Sam, I have a couple more questions with you. One thing that I've like really enjoyed is you trying to kind of nuance what the quote unquote Latino audience or voice is to this group that compiles so many different countries and so many different um, steps in kind of the immigrant process. You have people whose families have been here multiple generations and people who have lots of first generation as well. Could you tell us some of the, the different fault lines or um, realities from the cultures?
2: One, we are not monolithic. So we're not one block of voters. Puerto Ricans and Mexicans do not vote alike. Puerto Rican evangelicals are primarily Democrats. Mexican evangelicals voted primarily Republican. How about that? The irony is that Mexicans are impacted on the issue of immigration egregiously, Puerto Ricans or not.
0: Is that a second or third generation a phenomenon that is to say Mexicans who came here legally and followed the system, are they resentful of other Mexicans who are trying to in a sense what they would say subvert the system? Great question, great question.
2: And and we've had we have both in our churches and the answer would be no. I've never encountered that. Like I've never, there, there, there probably are some out there, but I've never encountered a Mexican who came in here legally, who has issues like significant. I can't believe they're coming here illegally. They should do it the way I did it. I have, I've never seen that. The reason is because they understand the plight and the poverty and, and the ludicracy of what's taking place south of the border that compels people to cross the Rio Grande with their children in backpacks. So there, there is compassion, actually instead of remorse or animosity. So that, these are some of the dynamics. Second, third generation Latinos see the world different from first generation Latinos. First generation Latinos are about self-preservation and second, third generation Latinos are about cooperation. And so it's not about isolationism and self-preservation of the culture and the language. It's more about how can I work together and how can we do things together? And so it's very different indeed, very different. Latinos are primarily Pentecostal. Out of the evangelical stream, they embrace the Pentecostal charismatic experience. The vast majority, according to Pew, will self-identify as Pentecostal or charismatic. There is a thriving non-Pentecostal, particularly Baptists. But even the the Baptists are very charismatic—the Baptist Latinos are very charismatic in their worship. Uh, And it's very charismatic with the exception of what we would call speaking in tongues, right? Plus so that's the reality of of what I call the tribe. So it's not monolithic, it's not one voting block it's very diverse in thought and it is independent i do believe it will be the latinos in america will be the largest independent voting constituency in the 21st century latinos more and more register as independent than any other ethnicity and we're going to continue to see that in the 21st century
0: how does it break down catholic and protestant in general terms
2: well the vast majority are still of course of the catholic faith without a doubt the Catholic faith. And then you have a great portion now that has emerged uh, in the evangelical community, but the majority are still, over 60% would be Catholic. The the, the issue, the dynamic that's unique, by the way, the uniqueness is that even the majority, according to Pew again, the, the majority of Latinos that are Catholic are charismatic Catholics which means that they are more like the Pentecostal evangelicals. So they worship the same. There's that that amount of energy, the volume, the embracing of the supernatural, miracles, healings, praying in a spiritual language. All of these elements are part of the Catholic charismatic experience. So there's a continuum taking place that has to do with the factor of dunami, numa, the paraclete, the spirit.
0: Yeah, that corresponds with my anecdotal experience. Uh, Right nearby our community here at Christianity Today is a community called West Chicago, which is heavily populated by Mexican immigrants, and I heard about a church over there, St. Mary's, that I'd heard good things about, so a Catholic church. So I went went, uh, one morning to go to their 8.30 Hispanic service. I got there 10 minutes early, and there was standing room only, and the service was conducted with guitars, and it was obviously a tremendous amount of devotion displayed in that service. So even locally, I see signs of that sort of charismatic Catholic energy here in West Chicago. Indeed. It's a beautiful community, indeed.
1: Well, thank you, Sam, for joining us. After you've had the chance to watch Sam on Friday, um, which is when the inauguration is, you can continue the conversation on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcasts. This is the time of the show now that we call precious moments. We ask everyone to go around and give a shout out to something, person, a thing, an event that is bringing you joy, and then you can tell listeners where you can be found online. You want to go first, Sam?
2: My precious moment was my coffee date with my 20-year-old daughter, uh, who is now a coffee aficionado there in Sacramento studies
0: oh oh, you mean a coffee snob
2: well we 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 use better terms we're more (laughs) gentle there mark
1: is the rhetoric right he's he's, a name calling all
2: about it's all about the tone (laughs) Um, and just sitting down and listening to her heart and her dreams and i mean my priorities now in comparison to 20 years ago which now is just i'm happy to be alive i'm happy to spend time with my baby girl with my grandkids, with my wife, with my children, with people I love, and uh, my faith in Christ and family. Those are my priorities, and everything else falls. Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, NHCLC. Twitter, NHCLC. Instagram is Pastor Samuel Rodriguez. Facebook is Pastor Samuel Rodriguez.
0: Mark. Yeah, my uh, uh, nephew from uh, Porterville, California, came to visit us. Hey. Hey. Where's Porterville? Porterville, just north of Bakersfield.
1: Just realized we have Three Californians on the show, by the way. Did you know, Sam, that Mark went to Santa Cruz?
0: You see Santa Cruz. I mean, I'm, I'm going to show my
2: bias here, but that's why I'm, I'm like the president of the Mark Galley fan club. Can we edit this? Can we take this out? <laughs> but that's absolutely sure. I indeed.
1: was literally, when I found out he was a banana slug, I just like, I think that's the most interesting thing <laughs> that I knew about him. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. That's I... okay.
0: Anyway, we have to, to honor his graduating from high school and be, uh, he... Became an Eagle Scout along the way. Uh, we invited him to come out to Chicago for a weekend and uh, show him the site. So, one of the things we did was we went to a magic show in which uh, hand magic was the main type of magic shown, which is always amazing to me when a magician can make coins appear out of thin air out of his hands, make cards do all sorts of crazy things. And I know something about that. When I was in high school, I read a book on hand magic. So, so I understand because I wanted to see if I could learn it. It takes so much practice. I just gave up. So I know what they're doing and I cannot uh-huh. see it and I cannot see it. It's, it's such a pleasure to watch them do this, this trickery.
1: <laughs> <laughs> can people follow you online somewhere
0: no not really because i don't do twitter and i don't do facebook but i do publish a newsletter called the galley report and if you want to subscribe to that for free you can go to com slash the galley report
1: awesome so one thing that's making me happy is i started my french classes last week like i'm pretty good at speaking spanish but i have not learned another language I don't know, ever. I I got French Rosetta Stone for my birthday six years ago and used it about six times, basically because it's so much easier for me to learn in the classroom. So I went to my first lesson last week and the instructor, it was a two-hour class and the instructor basically only spoke to us in French and he said we only have 20 minutes that he will be speaking to us in English every time. And he had to speak to each other most of the time, which was awesome. It was really just a well-done class in terms of getting us to actually use our language skills, even though none of us can speak French with a French accent besides him. People can find me on Twitter, M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, everyone, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. We have other podcasts too. In addition to this, you can find them if you go to iTunes and search for Christianity Today or if you go to our CT Podcast Facebook page. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe to our lowest price, which will not be there for that much longer. The show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud and if you like it, tell us that you like it over there. That helps a lot. We'll see you all next week.